Who's ready to feel awkward this morning? All right, yeah. We are, we are going to talk about subjects you don't usually hear about in church. I remember when I was, uh, when Carrie and I were getting engaged, it was the early 90s, and um, that was a period of time, interesting period of time in the church, because I grew up in church, you never heard the subject of sex raised in church at all. In fact, I can remember being a little boy in Sunday school, and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, and the teacher wanted to know, well, what does this mean, what does this mean? And then we got to the one about, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the teacher said, so what does that mean? And there was a little girl in the class, I don't remember how old I was, maybe eight or nine, and there was a little girl in the class who wasn't from there. You know, she was from the big city. And she said, it's when you have sex with someone you're not married to. And I was just like, oh my goodness. (laughs) She said that. (laughs) And then in the early 90s, everything changed because all of a sudden the church was really, really big into abstinence. And, uh, you know, a couple of years after that, the True Love Waits movement got going. Y'all know what True Love Waits was. I don't know if it's still around or not, but the idea of, of waiting until marriage was very much the emphasis whenever you talked about sex. And, and so they started, the church started talking about it um, in very much more frank terms than they used to. Um, there's even a story of W.A. Criswell, the, the old preacher of First Baptist Dallas. I mean, he was pastor there for years and years. And if you don't know anything about W.A. Criswell, just imagine the stereotypical Baptist preacher with white hair and you know, kind of a red face, just kind of a grandfatherly looking guy. And one Sunday he preached a sermon about sex and just shocked everyone. In fact, His whole thesis was that if you wait until marriage to have sex and you marry a Christian, then you're going to be just happy as can be and and your sex is going to be better than other people's. And he said, so boys, this is his key line, boys, marry a First Baptist girl. She'll love you so good, they'll have to haul you off in a wheelbarrow. And nobody in that church had ever heard their pastor say anything like that. And so they just kind of sat back for a few minutes and then burst into laughter. They didn't know what else to do. So it's still to this day known as the wheelbarrow sermon. Um, Well, I got married in the midst of that time. And I married a very strong Christian young woman. And so we definitely waited. She gets way more credit than I do for that. Um, And it wasn't as perfect as everybody said it was gonna be. I think the church at that time was right to encourage abstinence, but they oversold it. They made it sound like, hey, you marry a fellow believer and you wait until marriage to have sex, then you're gonna be, I mean, you're just, you're set. And it doesn't work out that way. There's more to it. As we've been talking about through this whole series, and if you haven't been here for the whole series, it's on podcast, it's work, learning to love somebody. And even your sexual relationship is work. And now it's almost like we've reacted to that whole emphasis from 20 years ago by saying, well, we're just not going to talk about this again. And so Christian people, Christian young people today don't seem to understand what the Bible teaches. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, sadly, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, that Christian young, young adults and, and teenagers aren't any more, uh, you know, their, their sexual lives aren't all that different from their peers. Um, and I think part of the problem is we're being discipled by the wrong sources. We're being discipled by our culture and not by the scriptures. So what I wanna do is just talk about three myths we hear in the culture about this subject, and then talk about what the Bible actually says about these myths, okay? So if you're not married, this is still gonna be useful to you because we live in a world where this is talked about constantly. Um, So I want you to hear these three myths. The first myth is that religion is sexually repressive. 
That is a myth. Now, can religion be sexually repressive? Yes. Are there religions where, uh, for instance, uh, it's male-dominated and so women are told you have to dress a certain way, you have to cover yourself in certain ways, otherwise you're a sinner? Absolutely. But is that in the Bible? I remember one time I, a, a non-Christian was talking to me. And he said, a non-Christian said to me, you know, don't you, that the Bible teaches that sex is only meant for reproduction. It's never for pleasure. And I said, um, where is that in the Bible? And he was sitting there just staring at me. And I said, um, by the way, if you find it in the Bible, don't tell my wife. And he laughed. Um, I, I think also of Andy Stanley, the, the pastor in Atlanta, having a discussion with a woman who said the same thing. Religion is sexually repressive and all that you're, you know, his church, I don't know, if you know how much you know about Andy Stanley. His church is just one of those that they, they're tailored toward unbelievers. They do everything. His sermons are preached toward people who are coming from a place of unbelief. And this woman had been going to his church for a while, and, and she was like, I, I get a lot of what you're saying. A lot of it sounds good. But still, the things in the Bible about sex are just repressive. It's just wrong. You can't, you can't live that way. And he said, well, let me ask you something. I love this question. He said, and I'm asking this honestly, has sex outside of marriage made your life better or just more complicated? You think about that question for a minute. So what does the Bible actually say on this? Well, let me ask you this. What is the first command in scripture? Before we put it on the board, does anybody know what the first command in the whole Bible is? Very good, yeah. Genesis 1:28. be fruitful and multiply. Now, here's a harder question. What do you have to do to obey that command? There we go. I'm so proud. Someone actually said it. Yes. Do you believe that the first command in the whole Bible is you have to have sex with your mate or you're not fulfilling the command of Christ? You're not fulfilling the command of God. Anybody who thinks that God is repressive on this issue, you don't even have to get past the first chapter of the Bible to see that they're wrong. He's not just allowing it. He's not just saying, well, if you have to, go ahead. He's commanding it. Proverbs 5, okay, here's where it gets really awkward. Sorry, sorry, I might even flush when I, say, when I read this. But Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, this is, these are the words of Solomon. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. What I love about those two verses is the Word of God is commanding husbands to rejoice in their physical relationship with their wife. When it says, in the wife of youth, it doesn't mean while you're young. I love that because I'm not young anymore. It means with the wife you married when you were young. It's an encouragement. If you read that in, in context, in Proverbs 5, it's a warning against adultery and it's telling middle-aged fools like me, don't decide, okay, I've been with this one for long enough. I'm going to find someone who catches my eye. He says, no, no. Rejoice in the wife you married when you were young. Rejoice in her. Be captivated always by her. Be captivated by her physically. In the Song of Solomon, anybody here ever read the Song of Solomon? Anybody? Yeah. What is Song of Solomon about? I know, I know there's a school of thought that says it's a it's an allegory about Christ and Israel, and I just think that's ridiculous. It's, it is what it appears to be. It is a poem of love between a man and his wife, and they dialogue back and forth, and it gets pretty steamy. I mean, it's, 
you know, it's 50 Shades of Solomon, right? I mean, it's, it's, I, I knew a youth minister who would tell his teenage boys, you read the whole Bible, but you go ahead and skip the Song of Solomon. You, you got enough of that going on in your mind now without it being fed with that book. You wait on that until later. Um, okay, so here's one, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4. And if you didn't know this was in the Bible, it's gonna blow your mind. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Okay, what is the husband's marital duty? <laughs> to have sex with her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive one another except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Now, I need to very quickly say, because I love that passage, I'm glad it's in the Bible, but I need to say, don't take it out of context. It should always be read within the context of a love relationship. So let me say it plainly. In a love relationship, you don't force someone to do what they don't want to do. This is not, this is absolutely not a command that says, well, your wife belongs to you, so you can, you can tell her what to do and she's going to do it, or vice versa. That's not what it's about. In a context of, and let me say it even more plainly, gentlemen, husbands, if you guilt your wife into sex, it's never going to work out well, okay? You may think that guilt sex is better than none at all, but it's, that does not lead to good things. If you're wondering why she never wants to, that's a different question, and maybe you should listen to the rest of this series and talk about that. But this is not about forcing someone to do what they don't want to do. This is about two people realizing, hey, this is an important part of our relationship, and we need to attend to it. And while there are times when we can refrain from it, there are times when, because of illness, because of, as Paul says here, because uh, we're, we're taking time to get close to the Lord, and so we don't want to think about those things. So for a couple of days, we're fasting from food and from sex and from other things. Okay, that's acceptable, but that's the exception for the most part. You need to attend to this part of your relationship because it is important, because God gave it to you. Now, let me ask you something. In all of that that I just read, does it sound to you like God doesn't want this to be pleasurable? Or does it sound like the opposite? Does it sound instead like God rejoices when we take joy in one another's bodies within marriage? That's what I read in the scriptures. So far from being sexually repressive, the Bible, I think the Bible has a much more excited view, a much more um, respectful view towards sexual activity than the world. The world has this weird mentality, while on the one hand, we're sort of all like junior high kids who giggle when we hear about it. On the other hand, we're like middle-aged perverts who can't think about anything else. And the Bible's like, no, this is something God created for a specific purpose within marriage. Celebrate it, rejoice in it. Now let's go to the other two myths. Myth number two, uh, sex is no big deal. Because that's one of the messages you hear from the world. Uh, that's, that's the message you hear from songs, right? That's the message you get in movies. What's it, and, 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 okay, I'll, I'll just say it. I, I, I'm man enough to say it. I enjoy watching romantic comedies, okay? I, I enjoy them, especially ones that aren't rated R, and it's hard to find those anymore. I, I enjoy those, but part of the problem with them is, what's the high point of every romantic comedy? they end up in bed together. Every time it's like, okay, here's where we're going. We're, we're going to that. 
we live in a culture where there's where hookups are, are basically considered that's that's just what you do and whether there's a commitment there or not and that's that's part of uh, living in the world especially if you're a certain age and there are those who will say why does the church why do christians why do moral people uh, make such a big deal about this. It's just, an, it's just a natural thing. It happens in every species, right? It's just an exchange of bodily fluids. That's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that, no, that's, something significant happens when two people sleep together. In the Jewish law, adultery was a capital offense. You know, I could, I could steal some of your property, and I'd be in trouble, but if I stole your spouse, I'd be killed. Because... To God, sex was different. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Again, this is one you've got to read in context. Don't take it out of context, but it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that sexual sin is worse in the eyes of God than other sin. Don't you think Jesus went to great pains to show that is not the case? When he would lift up someone like the woman who came and anointed him, um, and the, the pious Pharisee is like, oh, she's a harlot. How could he let this woman touch him? And Jesus says, hey, she, she understands forgiveness better than you do. So sexual sin is, is, is just sin in the eyes of God, just like my sins of various kinds. It's, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's not what this scripture is saying. What it is saying, though, is there are certain damages that are done to us physically, emotionally, when we misuse our bodies in that way. When it says when you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body, it's talking about the consequences that accrue in you because you're giving yourself away in a very significant way. And when that's, there's not a covenant there between you and that person and God, there are consequences that come about that are damaging. And I'm not just talking about uh, pregnancy outside of marriage and sexually transmitted disease. We get into all that. I'm talking about what happens to your soul. Again, what do the scriptures teach in the Bible? The term for having sex with someone in the Old Testament in Hebrew is the same term as the word to know. So, if God created this so that you could have something to share with the person you marry that you don't share with anybody else. You know them in a way that no one else has ever known them or will ever know them. You have this intimacy between you. That's the way it's supposed to work. And when it doesn't happen that way, there's a damage that happens to you emotionally, especially when you give yourself away in that way and then it's not reciprocated or you're betrayed. That is a terrible, terrible thing. And by the way, they would deny this, but even secular society knows that it's true that sex is different. And that's why the penalties for rape are different than the penalties for simple assault. If someone you know gets mugged and beaten up, you're worried about them, you're concerned, you're praying for them to get better. But if they get raped, it's different, and you know it. And society knows that. And we see, oh my goodness, something awful has happened to you. Oh my goodness, that's... That's far worse because sex is different. Sex is not just a physical act like uh, shaking someone's hand or like playing basketball with them. It is something very different. 
Now let me move to something you probably have heard before. It's out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. Again, an illustration of how, um, you know, the culture says sex is no big deal. We use it to sell tires and blue jeans and, and you know, roofing materials, whatever. But it's not to be taken casually. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, before any of you say, wait, that's impossible. What does it mean to look at someone lustfully? What does that mean exactly? It does not mean, it does not mean if you ever find someone attractive, you've sinned. Because you can't, you can't control who you find attractive. That's something that's just innate in you as a physical human being. The question is, what do you do with that? The question is, how do you look at that person? Do you then look at that person as an object to gratify your own self? Do you say, you know, there's this new secretary at my office and boy, she is really hot. I'm gonna make sure I walk by her desk every day at this certain time when I know she's gonna be there just to get a look at her. Because that's, that's called looking lustfully. Is it, is it, you know, I'm gonna go and make sure and see that movie because I heard that 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 particular actress that I have kind of a thing for, I heard she takes off her clothes in that movie. That's looking lustfully. Um, If you store up those images in your brain, and by the way, here's one of the hard things about this is once you get those images in your brain, you have a hard time getting rid of them, right? You have a hard time, once you download them, it's hard to delete them from your hard drive, let's just say. But when you choose to do that, when you say, I'm going to store this up in my mind so that when I'm all alone and I, I just need some entertainment, I can, I can recall the things I've seen and I can imagine myself there. That's what Jesus is talking about. And, and you might say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that better than, than physically committing adultery with her in the sense that the damage that it does to another person, perhaps? But Jesus says it's the same in his mind because of the damage it does to us. Because you don't see that person as a person anymore. And I, I don't know, some people would argue with that. They'd say, no, 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 I'm perfectly capable of looking at this person and, and appreciating their body and still treating them with respect. And I would disagree because that person is not a person to you anymore. That person is an object for your use. And then what you get into, especially us men, you get into this whole thing of every woman you meet, you you their worth to you is completely judged by the, the level to which they are attractive to you. In fact, it's automatic. You, you don't even think about it anymore. You just walk in and, and immediately you decide, well, I don't like her. Why? Because I don't find her attractive. Because that's the way I have trained my brain to work. That I like women who feed this, this inner sense that, uh, that, that makes me feel good because they're attractive and I can look at them and it, and it, it you know, turns on those certain receptors or whatever, and, and other women, I'm, I'm, they're not, I'm not a fan of them. So, okay, I'm going to hire those women because I like having them around. And do you see what happens there? And we know that happens. We see that happening. And I wish I could say it never happens in a place where a Christian man is the manager or the pastor, but it does. And let me just say three more things about this. I mean, this is such a significant couple of verses. and We almost never talk about it. Number one, notice when Jesus is talking about lust, the responsibility is on the man, not the woman. 
That doesn't mean that women can't look lustfully. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the responsibility is on the one who's looking, not the one who's being looked at. And religion tends to get that all turned around. And we want to blame the woman. And we're like, well, you're causing me to stumble. Look at you. Now, is there a place for discussion of modesty among women? Absolutely. I think it's a whole lot better when it comes from another woman. I think when I'm standing up here deciding how long your skirt needs to be, it gets a little funky. I don't know that I, I don't know that I have the right to make those statements. It's a very subjective thing. Is there a place for talk about modesty? Absolutely. Moms, talk to your daughters about modesty. Absolutely. But even more, talk to your sons about looking at women with respect. The responsibility is on men. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, so ladies, you better cover up everything but this little slit right around your eyes. Never does it say that. Wrap yourself up in, in tin foil. It says, men, be careful how you look at the women around you. Look at them the way you look at your mom. Look at them in the way you look at your sister. Look at them in a way that's respectful. Secondly, it shows how seriously God takes sexual thoughts. And a lot of us, a lot of us have fooled ourselves to think, hey, I'm, I'm pure uh, physically, but I, I've got this one little area where I can, I can just indulge myself because no one else knows about it. It's not hurting anybody. I can just, I can let my mind run free. And Jesus says, you're, you're fooling yourself. If you think that it doesn't damage you to go to those places in your mind. Now, is that an easy battle to win? No, it's not, especially if you've trained your brain that way for years and years and years because you've been discipled by our culture. But it's a battle you can win. It's a battle you can win and will win if you give it over to Christ and you work alongside the Holy Spirit. There's a book out there, um, Every Man's Battle. I, I, I recommend it. Uh, it. It speaks frankly about how to reshape your thinking as a man. There's every woman's battle too. Frankly, I don't know why you ladies would need it, but you know, it's, it's out there. That was a joke, okay? That was a joke. Number three, the third thing about this verse. I just say the entire Me Too movement would be absolutely unnecessary if the world just followed these two verses. If men just said, I'm gonna look at every woman with respect, I'm gonna look at that every single woman the way I hope they look at me, then there would be no need for women standing up and saying, I was harassed, I was assaulted, I was mistreated, I was victimized. I think these two verses solve it all. And that says that the church ought to lead the way in providing a solution to the problems of our culture in that area. The world ought to be able to look to the church and say, well, I don't necessarily agree with them theologically, but you know, the men in that segment of our society do tend to treat women the way they should be treated, do tend to treat them with respect, do tend to look at them the way they should. They're not saying that now, but they should. Okay, so the world says sex is no big deal. God's word says absolutely it's a big deal. But on the opposite side, and here's the third myth, the world says sex is an ultimate thing. It is the ultimate thing. It seems to go against the other point, right? It's very ironic. The, the world hasn't really uh, reconciled that contradiction. They say, and this is the drumbeat you hear from society, that sexual expression, sexual fulfillment is an inalienable right that, uh, that uh, consenting adults should be able to do whatever they want to, whatever is necessary for their happiness. And anybody who says you can't do this in the, in the realm of sex is against you, is 
uh, a repressive force to be opposed. And frankly, I don't want to get too far into this because that's not the subject at hand, but this is the idea that it's at the heart of a lot of our disagreements about sexuality, about the definition of marriage, because people on one side will say, hey, it's oppression to say that I can't have sex with whoever I want to, whoever I choose, and plus, I don't just need to have that right, I need it to be celebrated. I need for all society to get just as excited about me um, having sex with this person as they would about a bride and a groom who are doing it the traditional way. Because we've decided that sex is an ultimate thing. How dare you deny me that? How dare you deny me the right to this fulfillment with the person I choose? It's almost like it's in the Constitution. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and sex with whomever I choose as long as they're a consenting adult. Now, I think you know what the Bible says on this. We've talked about it. Sex is meant for a man and a woman within marriage, period. But I want you to think about the idea behind it, this idea that that sex is an ultimate thing, that unless you can have that perfect sexual relationship, that perfect sexual expression, you can't possibly be happy, you can't possibly be fulfilled, because that's the message you hear from society. Yet, the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, and even a lot of unbelievers would agree and say, yeah, I I don't believe he was God, but I believe he was a a great human being. That person chose to be single, chose to be celibate by choice, and so did the apostle Paul. So I want you to read uh, again from 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 7. And this is the same chapter where he commands husbands and wives to not deny one another physically. And just a few verses later, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What is Paul saying? He's saying, yeah, because I know that God has made you the way you are um, within marriage, take care of each other physically. I wish you were like me. I don't need any of that. I am single and I'm happy being single. I wish everybody could have the gift that I have. Is Paul anti-marriage? No. I mean, he's, he's already said, uh, he's already commanded us as, as believers in Christ within marriage to, to fulfill each other's physical needs. His point is, I'm glad that God gave me the ability, the calling to not be married, to not uh, have sex because of the entanglements that it causes. Because now I can be fully committed to Christ. And I think about what Paul did. Paul went from town to town. He would... He would start a church, he'd be there a few months until they ran him off, or he got the church established, whichever came first, and then he'd move on to the next one. He was constantly in danger. He was constantly in poverty. He earned his own living. He, was, he would say, pastors should be paid, but don't pay me because I'm, I'm preaching to unbelievers, so I'm going to earn my own living with a separate trade. I mean, Paul lived a hard life. He, could, he would have had a hard time doing that if he'd had a wife and children to take care of. He would have had a hard time saying, I'm going to go into that city where I know they hate me, where they're probably going to arrest me, where they're definitely going to beat me, where they might kill me. He would have had second thoughts about things like that if he'd known, wait, if I die, my kids are left with no provider. Paul said, I'm free. I can, I can serve God with my whole heart, my whole life, with nothing held back. I don't have to worry about keeping this other person happy. Again, not, he's not talking down the institution of marriage. He's saying, For me, it is a blessing to be single. And here in in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, it's a gift. And some people have that gift. 
Some people have the calling of lifelong singleness. And I remember the first time I realized this. I'd read that in the Bible. I just sort of glossed it over. But I was in seminary, and I was, I was working on a, on a cleaning crew at a church. That was my part-time job. And there was another guy um, on the cleaning crew who was an old guy. He was like 30. So, you know, here's this 30-year-old guy who's in seminary, and I'm talking to him, and he's single. And I find this out. I said, oh, oh, so you're not married? And he said, no, I'm not married. And I said, well, don't worry. God has somebody picked out for you. And he said, I don't think so. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, no, I, I think I'm called to be single. And, and I, that's my life. That's my calling. I'm thankful for it. And I was just blown away because I was always told God has somebody for everybody. It's this little magical uh, Christian mingle up in heaven, you know, this little, little, you know, swipe left. God swipes right on this person for you, and there you are. And, or is it swipe left? I don't know. I've never done it. But um, aren't you glad? I don't know. Um, but, and then this guy says, no, some of us, this is our life, and we're happy with it. We're, we're, we rejoice in it. Any of you who are single or any of you who married later in life, did you ever get tired of people in the church giving you a hard time about not being married? You ever get tired of, so, when you get married? So, uh, you ever going to have some kids? At my last church, um, our our youth minister was African-American and a good friend of mine. And, you know, it's mostly white church, black youth minister. So anytime a young black woman would visit the church, every single time, Hey, Stephen, have you, have you met her? And that's a shame that Christians have to deal with that when they're trying to follow God's call. It's a shame that the church plays its part in this whole idea that sex is an ultimate thing by saying, well, you're getting married someday, right? And you wonder if they would have said that to Jesus or Paul. Sex is not an ultimate thing. Is it wonderful? Is it something God celebrates? Absolutely. Is it the ultimate thing? No, but it points to the ultimate thing. See, the the marriage relationship points to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Again, I said, like I said a few weeks ago, what was a wedding in the time of Jesus? It was the groom comes, he enters into the bridal chamber with his intended, and then after that, there's a big celebration. And that's the picture of Christ returning. And if that freaks you out, if that's like, ooh, that's all icky, then you've got a wrong idea about all this. Everything that we do within marriage, our, our physical relationship within marriage is supposed to point toward the day when we are one with Christ, when he returns to take us, and the celebration of all celebrations begins. And that's what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. So sex is not an ultimate thing, but it points to the ultimate thing, and we can rejoice in it. So, I'm not going to take questions. <laughs> but feel free, feel free to come talk to me one-on-one if you have questions at any time, all right? And I want to leave you all to, to pray over one another before you head to the sanctuary in about 15 minutes. Um, we're talking about the end times today. So yeah, I t- I'm talking about the end times and sex on the same day because I'm insane. <laughs> but let me, let me pray for you and then you can pray for each other. Lord, I thank you so much for creating marriage, for creating sex, for creating uh, this bond 
that happens when a man and his wife become one flesh. I thank you, Lord, for giving us a different path than the world shows us. And Lord, that's a hard path to work, walk because our bodies tell us something different sometimes. Our minds desire different things that, that aren't good for us. And certainly our culture tells us something different. I pray, Lord, that we would walk the path that you've set for us in such a way that we're not judgmental or feeling superior, understanding that if we do something right, it's only by your grace, but walk this path in such a way that it shines a light to the rest of the world, that they would see men and women who treat each other with great respect, that they would see men and women who are bound together within marriage, that they would see purity and integrity that draws them to you. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.